We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad. On the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of Stir Crazy on December 12, 1980. It was written by Bruce J. Friedman, directed by Sidney Poitier, and released by Columbia Pictures. The working title was Prison Rodeo. Robert Raines, the Arizona State Prison Warden, had long dreamed of constructing a rodeo arena on the prison grounds, and when Columbia touched base about using the prison as a shooting location, he found a way to make the dream come true. Oh, God. He basically charged yeah. them the price of installing the arena to shoot at the prison. 350 inmates essentially played themselves, and the budget of renting the location exactly paid for the installation. Wow. That yeah. gives a whole different flavor to this movie. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, those rodeos are always gross. Uh, yeah. We talked about what yeah. a gross practice it was earlier this year in Urban, Urban Cowboy. Cowboy. Um, and it's still gross here. This was the first movie directed by an African-American to gross north of $100 million in the box office. And as far as I can tell, only the second African-American director that we've had for 1980 after George Bowers, who directed The Hearse earlier this year. Huh. I'm, I'm really surprised at what that movie made. Yeah. Uh, insanely, still the highest grossing film from an African-American director until Ryan Coogler's Black Panther. Are you kidding? No. Oh, my God. That's quite a record. Yeah. I'm still questioning if this movie actually made $100 million. It did. <laughs> in in uh, 1980, too. That's yeah. a lot of money. I don't get it. Throughout production, Richard Pryor suffered from illness and exhaustion, a clever code for Pryor's prolific cocaine use, which we got hints of earlier this year in his other 1980 performances. He eventually walked off the set of the film, and they seriously considered dropping him from the ending, even though he only had four days left to shoot, but eventually they decided to let him just finish his role. It sounds a little bit like Belushi in the Blues Brothers, yes. where he would just wander yeah. off set. <laughs> but this was more like he was fighting with people on set the whole mm. time. and Not just asleep in somebody yeah. else's Not house. just a black bear <laughs> wandering off set and into people's <laughs> living rooms. Did you guys lose a John Belushi? <laughs> Pryor and Wilder expected to reteam with director Sidney Poitier for his next film, Hanky Panky, but Pryor backed out at the last moment, and the part was rewritten for Gilda Radner. Huh. He was also supposed to be in Blazing Saddles before this, but was uninsurable on account of his cocaine habit and replaced with Cleavon Little. But he wrote Blazing Saddles. He did, and he got that credit there. I haven't seen Hanky Panky. I would have assumed that Gilda Radner was the love interest in that movie. So she is. They rewrote it to be a love interest uh, instead okay. of a buddy comedy. I was just going to say, I'm like, that was really forward to them to, to make them mm. gay lovers. <laughs> yeah. Trading Places is another title he lost out on because of his substance abuse. That was supposed to be Wilder and Pryor again. Really? Oh, yep. well, I'm, I'm, I, I think it I'm worked out much, for the best. Yeah, I'm, I'm pleased with the Aykroyd Murphy. Here's a highlight reel of Richard Pryor, high on cocaine, doing a live <laughs> interview with a Mormon high school public access program during the production of Stir Crazy. Trigger warning, he says some inappropriate stuff here, but it's Richard Pryor. What are you going to do? I don't like the use of the word trigger. Really bothers me. Sorry. <laughs> I need some outfits. Yeah, I have never got no pussy anywhere until I did this move with Gene Wilder. <laughs> Gene Wilder attracts pussy. Gene Wilder attracts pussy like and some pretty wild. white boys. <laughs> I ain't no good. I ain't gonna try to be no good. This should be in pendentry. But I'm making money. They're paying me $2 million to do this movie. <laughs> Do you believe it? <laughs> My grandmother didn't make that all her life. She's a better woman than you are a man. <laughs> you want to talk about this movie? Yeah, sure. What do you want it's, to know about this movie? Stir it crazy. sucks. <laughs> now, Rich, uh, Gene Wilder said that he Gene thinks... Wilder ain't shit. He's a <laughs> No, come on. You don't mean that. Gene's yeah, not... I mean it. <laughs> you ain't gonna put it on. Is that why he said he was gonna marry you? Yeah, he can suck my dick. I don't care. <laughs> 
I like Gino because he's funny. Did he, but uh, he's queer as a three dollar bill. The movie they paid me. I got my money. Fuck them. I'm rich. I'm a rich black ignorant. I don't believe it. Oh, good. You the only I one. I don't believe that. I think, <laughs> I think, the rest of them out there in the audience know. I you ask some of these cowboys if they want to lynch me or not. <laughs> I think we're going to see the day when Richard Pryor edits or writes, stars, and directs a movie. Richard Pryor would never do nothing y'all want. Richard Pryor is a criminal. I come from criminal people. I will be a criminal. I didn't get caught yesterday buying seven pounds of cocaine in front of eight policemen. They couldn't catch me. I am a lucky black greasy motherfucker. <laughs> I'm happy. Here I am, they're paying me a million and a half dollars to do this movie. Fuck you. I didn't earn it. I don't know how much a million is. You ever counted a million? You have to have an accountant. A Jew. <laughs> That's goodness. Uh, yeah, yeah. That was with a high school teacher on a high school campus with a high school student audience on a live broadcast. God damn! And they were Mormons. Yeah. <laughs> well, I will say this: the interviewer handled himself very well. <laughs> he tried so hard to get like five seconds he could use, uh, but he kept getting derailed. The film starts with footage of New York under an excerpt from a track called Crazy by Gene Wilder. We see angry people fighting over cabs and shoving each other along sidewalks. A homeless woman finds a shirt in the trash, but when she sees it's a I Heart New York shirt, she blows her nose in it and throws it away. We move past doormen into a fancy building where a dinner is underway. People are going crazy for the salad. In the kitchen, we learn that a woman has accidentally spiked all the food with something she found in the waiter's bag, mistaking it for oregano. The waiter enters, Harry Monroe, played by Richard Pryor, and he is not at all excited to see that half of his 65 African ganji stash has been cooked away. We cut to a mall where playwright Skip Donahue, played by Gene Wilder, is bothering an actress he recognizes as she leaves a department store. He starts by complimenting some of her recent work and then accuses her of both shoplifting clothing and being naked under her trench coat. He's the store detective, apparently, so he has to keep track of these things. Every time she says something insulting to him, he just busts up laughing like it's the funniest thing he's ever heard because she's just playing this angry character. Weirdly, he's not just accusing her of having stolen a dress, but also of throwing it away in a different store? I was super confused by this whole scene. I don't know. Like, maybe she was throwing it away to hide and get it later. I don't yeah. know. Well, here's the thing. Nothing comes of this scene. No. Yeah. I, I thought for sure that something would come of it, but instead nothing comes of it. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It, at least, like, the concept of Richard Pryor's story of the drugs accidentally getting the salad is like, okay, I get where the, there, there can be a conclusion here. But I also understand why he might get fired for that. Yeah, but I don't understand what is going on here and why Gene Wilder is fired. Yeah, it for, seems like he's good at his job. Yeah, but, but there's or there's no scene that shows him that he was wrong. Right. Or right. he had made a mistake. Right. There's no conclusion to this scene. And alas, Chekhov's naked woman in a trench coat never goes off. We Which, just we just drop that whole yeah. story point. Yeah, don't even get boobs out of this. Yeah. Even though we will <laughs> later. Yeah. They found a way to work him in. Back in the kitchen, the chef is panicking that she will surely be fired for this, but Harry is mad because this weed was supposed to pay for a foursome with his girlfriend and her friends. I don't get that either. What? what Sex is... for drugs? Tale as old as time. Song okay. as old as rhyme. <laughs> <laughs> Beauty just... and the weed. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> The girl who used it by mistake suggests that maybe the diners will blame the wine. Well, maybe she'll think it's the wine. Think it's the wine? Let me tell you something. There's no wine in the world. It's no wine. Huh? This is 65 African gunji from the motherland. Do you understand? It's been soaked in the earth back home. This is mean. One joint of this puts Southern California. 
back in 65. Did you know there was a revolution in 65? We went to sleep and missed it because of this. This is green. This is bad. And you done just spread it over everything. I hope you had fun. Because I ain't going to have no fun. It, forgive me for my weed ignorance. Does weed get better over time like wine does? Why would you want 15-year-old weed? <laughs> I don't know what 65 means if it literally is the vintage of this weed. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. well, that's what I assumed he was saying. If we're, because maybe it's I think a- weed uh, scientifically gets stronger uh, the newer it is. Well, like, yeah, yeah. It seems it seems like this would be like stale and old. And, yeah. But maybe 65 is just the name of it. Yeah, it's some kind of nickname for it. Back at the fancy dinner party, everybody looks especially stoned. We cut to Clancy's Bar and Restaurant, where Harry is hypnotized by a woman dancing near a jukebox. Skip enters and excitedly tells his friend Harry that he was fired today. Harry says the same thing happened to him. I'm reminded again of Dumb and Dumber, where both lead characters are fired on the same day and decide it's time for a change of scenery and move completely across the Mm -hmm. country. The dancing woman, Nancy, comes to join them at the table and say hi to Skip. Skip neglects to introduce his friend, who is clearly interested. After she leaves, Skip warns Harry that she's the hottest girl in New York, but she's not a very serious person. (laughs) Neither am I. A cab driver follows his customer into the restaurant, shouting at him for paying a dollar for an almost $10 ride. The man insists he gave him a 10. Skip is trying to show the power of persuasion and interrupts the fight between these two men, but doesn't seem to notice that just as he's walking up, the cab driver gets the other guy's balls in a pair of pliers. Or his dick, I can't tell. Uh, either way, I wouldn't be too pleased. No, it's not my favorite. It's close, though. Uh, <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> nothing. Um, Skip thinks that his gentle conversation is what's calming these men down. Not, not the genital conversation? Yeah. <laughs> you don't really want to hurt this man, do you? No, 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 not at all. Well, do you want more than what's coming to you? No, that's right. Well, then we're halfway home. No. <laughs> Now, can't we work this out in a civilized manner? It's okay with me. (laughs) Back at the table, Skip talks Harry into Hollywood as a destination for them and exaggerates the profits they'll see and the women they will meet. It's the same as that conversation in Dumb and Dumber again. Someplace warm. A place where the beer flows like wine. Where beautiful women instinctively flock like the salmon of Capistrano. Harry is finally sold after Skip describes a topless beach date with two lovely Californian women. They drive across the country, and just as they're pulling into Arizona, the car breaks down, and they have to dump most of their savings to fix it. They pop into a bar called The Whistle Stop, and Skip watches two cowboys take turns on a speed bag in the corner. I feel like we could have just started here, on, like right here, like yeah. on the road mm-hmm. trip, like we just see them on a road trip. I don't need to know why. Like, they're just on the road. Here's the thing. I, th- I think it makes sense to start with both of them getting fired, so you understand the impetus for this road trip. But how easy is it to write a funny scene of a person getting fired? Yeah. And the the Gene Wilder one is 100% flubbed. Yeah. Like, I can see how maybe the other scene works, mm-hmm. that, that Pryor is in trouble because these drugs got into the food. But even then, they wouldn't admit to these people that that's what happened, and those people would never accuse them of having drugged them. Yeah. So I feel like he wouldn't have gotten fired either, but I don't even understand what is supposed to be the reason for Gene Wilder's firing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this movie was too long anyways, so if you just cut that whole beginning off and start the conversation in the car and just explain that they got fired, yeah. just be done but with it. I want to see them fired. I just want to see it happen in a funny way. Yeah. Skip decides, against Harry's protestations, to approach the two cowboys and get a feel for them as characters to inspire his writing. Uh, forgot to mention, he's a screenwriter and Harry is an actor, or mm-hmm. at least that's what they would like to be. They're, right. not, they're not making much doing that yet. The two cowboys don't seem much for conversation, and Skip jumps in to try his hand at the speed bag. After punching it a few times, the cowboys shove him away and then punch it so hard that it flies off of the rack and crashes through a lighting fixture on its way to the opposite wall. Harry pulls Skip away from the men, and Skip tells him about the gig that he's lined up for them in this town. They're dressing as woodpeckers and singing and dancing in a bank lobby. According to some sources, Richard Pryor refused to wear this costume for the film, and there's actually a stand-in dancing with Gene Wilder here. I totally believe that. But it's hard to tell, um, though it's entirely possible this was just a rumor based on other problems during the production. 
The crowd at the bank seems enamored by their dance and song. Oh, you'll save money, knock on wood, when you do what a good woodpecker should. Save for a horse or a brand new ranch, when you flock to the Glenboro Savings Branch. You can feather your nest with frills, fill your garage with coup de bills. The guys hop on their lunch break and we slow zoom into the costumes hanging on a wall in a break room and a nefarious music sting hints at something terrible about to happen. We see a hand with a tattoo reach up and steal the costumes off a hook. And then we cut into the bank lobby where, impressively, these two imposter bank robbers have completely memorized the entire song and dance number. Uh, in the middle of their first performance, though, they attack a bank guard and then punch out a female customer yeah. before jumping over the counters to steal all of the bank's money. You'll save money, knock on wood, when you do what a good woodpecker should. Save for a horse or a brand new ranch when you block to the grain bro savings. I kind of imagined this was like the jingle for the bank. So, so they would have lo- heard it on a commercial. Yeah, that's or what I'm thinking. If they're locals, they just know it. I just thought it was themed so well to the costumes, the woodpecker well, costumes. Well, I kind of assumed that that's the mascot of the bank or the I, logo I or something. Know. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm thinking too hard about this. Well, <laughs> I, I want to know why the little girl and her mother were still there. Waiting, Hours later. Waiting for the next performance. Yeah. Maybe that's why the girl just liked it so much. I don't think it was that long ago because they did their performance. They went and to eat right. and left their costumes. So and it could have been like 10 minutes later. It, yeah, it was a crime of opportunity. But it's still a long time <laughs> to spend in a bank. They were long lines. You see how many people were in that bank? Yeah, but they were so happy. There was no digital banking back then, Patrick. Yeah, nothing to say, huh? <laughs> <laughs> The bank robbers make their getaway wearing the costumes and driving Harry and Skip's van. They ditch the van and the costumes just around the corner as Harry and Skip are walking up to the bank to find out what all the fuss is. The bank is surrounded by police cars and they are immediately pointed out by the bank manager and arrested. As they're walked into jail, Harry puffs out his chest to act tough and starts coaching Skip to do the same. Yeah, I'm bad. I'm bad. As they are dropped in their holding cell, they repeatedly announced to the room that they don't want no shit. That's right. That's right. We bad. Huh? <laughs> that's right. We don't want no shit either. That's right. Darn right. We don't want no shit. Nobody seems to care about their act. Suddenly, Skip is pretending to do karate, and Harry doesn't know how to react to it. Hey, Skip notices an old crazy man trying to catch an invisible fly in the holding tank and suddenly Skip's eyes are floating around the room as though he sees the fly too. (laughs) The invisible fly lands on a bald man's head and Skip can't help but slap at it. The man Skip hits stands up and asks, Did you get it? (laughs) When Skip shakes his head no, the man claims to see the fly on Skip's nose and winds up a punch, but he misses Skip and hits another large inmate. The bald guy bribes the bigger guy with a joint, and he asks Harry for a light. Give me a light. He wants a light. <laughs> right on. And Harry is just collapsing. He doesn't know how to respond to this request for a light. He can't get the match to strike on his face or his teeth, but eventually he lights it up with the tough guy's chest hair. It's weird very weird also when you see an invisible fly and you smack a tough guy in the head and he asks if you get it the answer is yes (laughs) you say yes (laughs) ray when someone asks you if you're a god you say yes the guy tells harry he's a short son of a bitch and he agrees oh i'm a short son of a bitch my father was a short son of a bitch too my mother was shorter than him and my brother was real short. We couldn't even see him. He was short. When the tough guy finds out they're here for bank robbery, he tells them they can kiss the baby, but we never really learn what that meant. <laughs> Later, their attorney arrives and meets with them in the cell. He tells them that he's filed a couple motions, and they want to know why he hasn't filed more. We move into the courtroom, where almost immediately the judge has returned from his own deliberations and declares them guilty, sentencing them to 125 years in the Department of Corrections. Their attorney tells them, that with good behavior, that equates to 30 years tops. 
Harry is still trying to do the math and figure out how old he will be when they release him in 125 years. I don't even want to do 100. I don't even want to do 100. Their attorney tries to explain the appeals process, but Harry is still terrified having concluded he will be 161 when he's released from prison. Harry and Skip arrive at Glenboro State Prison via bus. Their hands and legs are shackled, and Skip is having trouble walking like this. One of the guards is very tough with Skip, shoving him along. All the guards are marched into the building two by two. Skip has paired up with Jesus, who teaches him how to walk in the chains. Jesus says he's here for bank robbing, but also that they accused him of robbing several banks when he only robbed one. Harry is marched alongside Rory, who refers to Harry by nickname as Sweet Pants, and then we get the first bits of a lot of homophobic humor from Richard Pryor over the course of the film. Later, in a classroom setting, Skip is having trouble with a written exam, and he brings his problem to the instructor's attention, but is repeatedly yanked back into his desk by the same angry guard. He continues to yell at the guard as though he weren't in charge. You know, I'm just about to lose my patience with you. Skip warns the guard not to grab him again, citing a fight he had at camp as a child as evidence of his strength. A kid tried that stuff on me once at Camp Minakani in Vermont, and I hit him so hard that his braces ripped the whole upper part of his lip. His mother had to come and get him in the middle of the season. Harry and Skip are led back to the cell block, where luckily for them they'll be sharing a cell. It only occurs to Skip now that they're in prison. Yeah, I think that they play these jokes too long. Yes. They're not really funny the first time. When yeah. They're like, oh, okay, I get it. You don't understand what prison is like, and the black guy does, and you're you're doing things you shouldn't do. And then they play that for another 10, 15 minutes of gags that are the same thing over and over. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of these things were improvised. Yep. And th- this whole sequence that happens next where, where Gene Wilder is just- He has a breakdown on their way into yeah. the cell. Yeah. Um, I thought I thought so much of this movie was him performing, like that they were performing together as a means of like distraction, or maybe proving insanity. Or yeah, something. It was um, a strategy. Yeah. Um. I, I don't, do you guys ever seen uh, Spies Like Us? No. No. Uh, they Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd both immediately realize that they're in over their heads, and when Chevy Chase is trying to cheat off an exam. Um, he's like faking a heart condition and Dan Aykroyd who they never met each other. Yeah. But Dan Aykroyd steps right in realizing that this is his opportunity and how well they play off each other to, as a distraction to get out of this exam. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I thought for sure that this was going to go somewhere like that. They're, that they are aware of what they're doing and this is meaningful, but it turns out they're just trying to be silly and make the camera laugh. Yes. That's all that's happening. Um, but Harry is like, having a meltdown and then he turns to pick another fight with that same guard he knocks the nightstick out of his hand and tells him no more hitting and then he speaks sternly to him and then spins him around and jumps on his back to pretend he's a horse but eventually he calms down after like gripping harry's hand really tightly and then the joke is over we can just go into the cell but then richard Pryor is like all right now it's my turn to do the exact same joke over again like i'm having a panic attack yeah. And it's just like you didn't have to you didn't have to run camera on all of this. Well, I mean, I think that a large portion of the problem with this movie is the editing. Yeah. Uh, but also being largely improvised and and not having a strong through line for all of these scenes. I I just I think we got probably two thirds of the way through this movie. And I'm like, what is this movie about? Yeah. Aside from you're in jail and you don't want to be in jail, I yeah. have no idea what this movie is about. Yeah, it, it's it's about two guys who got fired and want to move to L.A. but then get a job at a bank and they get framed for a bank job and then sent to prison but then have to do compete in a prison rodeo and then plan an yeah. escape. <laughs> yeah. it, it's just so convoluted. It just need it just needed something to carry it through and all of these scenes were just 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 felt like random yeah harry makes a very outlandish lunch order in the cafeteria and is served plain mashed potatoes rory offers to get him the cheeseburger he ordered and he is reluctant to accept rory's help on account of his being a gay person seated in the cafeteria they notice grossberger for the first time he's a huge like 400 pound guy and Rory tells them that he's the biggest mass murderer in the history of the Southwest. My dear, 
He killed his entire family and all his relatives in one weekend. And then he killed some more people that reminded him of his family. Right away, Skip has decided to try and befriend this person in keeping with his love of challenges. Jesus explains how evil this guy is. He threw the chaplain through a wall over at the library, burned the furniture factory to the ground, but he hasn't killed anyone here yet. I wouldn't sit with him and I killed my stepdaddy. Prisoners scatter as Grossberger searches tables for a salt shaker and a guard cocks his shotgun not knowing what's going on here. Skip stands and walks to sit with him, but Grossberger grunts at him loudly and Skip is scared back to his table. I never understand that trope of cocking your gun. Like, is it normally not cocked? Yeah. Because now it is cocked. And there's, you can't undo it. Yeah. <laughs> so now it's just cocked So forever. now it's like, it, it should always be ready to fire in this situation. Yeah. In the prison yard later, a prisoner is brought to Jack, Jack Graham, the head of the drug ring in this prison. The prisoner being dragged was apparently given a lot of cocaine, and he was supposed to deal it to the prisoners, but he didn't, and he never paid for it. The guards turn a blind eye as this prisoner is punished. In addition to cocaine, Jack Graham can apparently get you alcohol or women, whatever you need in here, and he can get you killed. Harry and Skip stand in line for a meeting with the warden, Skip tells Harry he's keeping a list of suggestions for the prison. Roomier cells, soap dish, toilet seats. They're brought in together and meet with Warden Beatty, who <laughs> intentionally sounds like Warren Beatty, played by Barry Corbin and his assistant Craig T. Nelson. What is the character name for Craig T. Nelson? I just called him Craig T. Nelson over and over again in my notes. I don't uh, think they say Deputy it. Ward Wilson. Okay, Deputy Wilson. I don't know if Ward is his actual name or if he's Deputy Warden Wilson. I'll just say Wilson, Deputy Wilson. Skip starts into his list for the warden when Wilson interrupts and points at the mechanical bull across the office. Get on the bull. Get on the bull. Get on the bull. Warden Beatty tells them about the annual prison rodeo, and they test every prisoner on this mechanical bull to see if they have any natural talent for it. Skip gets on the thing backwards at first, but once they get it moving, he's actually extremely good at it. Like John Travolta, he's, mm -hmm. he, it seems like he's doing some of this himself, although it's clearly sped, sped up. up footage for some of it. Beatty thinks he has a ringer to win the top prize this year from his rival prison warden. <laughs> uh, it's like the camp across the lake. <laughs> yeah. Beatty excuses them to their cell, even though they never got Harry up on the mechanical bull to see if he's good at it too. You never know. Wilson insists that the mechanical bull is malfunctioning because even Jack Graham can't get it past a four, but uh, Skip here was able to ride it all the way to a six, which is the maximum on the little lever that Wilson was holding. Didn't they go to nine in Urban Cowboy? They did, but this the, the double lot doesn't go all the way to, yep. to nine or ten. Beatty is indebted to the warden of the other prison and intends to make up his losses by entering this East Coaster as a ringer because he thinks... Oh, they're, they're never going to suspect that a New Yorker will be good, so I can bet them a lot of money. New York City! Get a rope. Later in the yard, Jesus tells them that the prize can range between eighty-five dollars and $100,000, and that all of that money goes to the wardens, not to the prison. Jesus warns Skip that if he refuses to participate in the contest, they will deny his parole. Also, Jesus has a plan that they might be able to bust out of prison during the contest if he does participate. Skip seems uninterested in risking their appeal until Rory points out that he's had five appeals in six years and is constantly turned down. I mean, I feel that there's a little bit of difference since Rory's there for murder. Yes. And they're, they're also like still investigating their case. Although I guess it's not really being investigated actively right now. Yeah. Warden Beatty calls Warden Sampson and makes their bet for the year. During this call in the background, we see Sampson's ringer taming a bull. His name is Geronimo and he seems like he knows what he's doing. Jesus sits Skip down and tells him step one in this plan that they're agreeing to is to pretend like he doesn't want to be a part of the contest. If he holds out long enough, they'll let him pick his crew, meaning Jesus, Harry, and Rory can all break out together with him. Apparently there's some weakness in the arena that they expect they would be able to escape through. Right, because um, we're, um, we're assuming that since Jesus, they say that Jesus was 
a championship rider down in Mexico. He's been there before. So yeah, we can assume that he's been to this rodeo before and knows at least some of the layout. And he knows that because they're they're off the prison grounds, they're somewhere where it's a little bit more permeable mm-hmm. of a location. If, if you had a crew. Yeah. Immediately, Beatty and Wilson show up and tell him that he's been chosen for the contest, but Skip refuses. I can't do that. What the hell are you talking about? Well, I should have told you in your office. My mother was a veterinarian. I can't have anything to do with the exploitation of animals. She would turn over in her grave. He pretends to speak with his mother's spirit for a moment to sell his craziness. I said no. I told him no. Ma, are you crazy? I have witnesses. All right, we'll talk about it myself. Wilson is still uncomfortable with Skip as their choice and pitches Jack Graham again, but Beatty's not interested. We get a quick montage of the inmates, including Harry and Skip, doing heavy-duty labor. This is Wilson trying to make them go crazy or ruin them in some way that he won't be able to participate because Wilson doesn't want him in this rodeo. We get a weirdly long joke about Harry trying to drink water out of a spoon with holes punched in it. Mm -hmm. He tries it like four times. And as soon as he knows there's holes in the bottom of the spoon... That's the end of the joke. It's over. Yeah. That's that's every joke in this movie. Yeah. It goes on way too long. It wasn't funny the first time. Because why do they give him so many opportunities to go back? Yeah. It'd be like once. Yeah. And once he realizes it has a hole, it's too late. It's going to the next guy. Yeah. The two of them get walked back to their cell, practically collapsing at the end of the day. As soon as the guards leave, Skip breaks from his karate voice into a crying one. and then like he's getting warned yeah. by harry like no they're coming back they're coming back in the same like karate-ish voice no 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 later harry and skip are working early again in their cell trying to put on the same pair of pants at the same time <laughs> i, I kind of like this yeah one. that's a good moment um, and then Harry thinks that one of his legs is just dead because yeah. he's grabbing he's grabbing Skip's other leg. Wilson nails Skip on some minor infraction and his punishment handcuffs him to the ceiling of a cell and he's hanging by his arms but his legs don't touch the ground. So when they take him down a few hours later, he tells them that they fixed his back pain, a joke which will come up later in another Craig T. Nelson movie 24 years later. <laughs> Next, Deputy Wilson stuffs Skip in the hot box for five days, and when he comes out, he asks if he can stay in for one more day, please. They lead him back to a cell, which he learns he's now sharing with Grossberger and Harry, and then we get, like, two full minutes of them just yeah. being uncomfortable about it. Um, that that happens for a while. And and uh, the guy playing Grossberger, Erland uh, uh, Ur- Van Lipth, you yeah. say? um he's trying so hard not to laugh yeah like his face he's trying to keep his lips so tight yeah with richard pryor just squealing and like making goofy noises you can see that he's just trying so hard not i to think laugh. even gene wilder is having trouble keeping straight and eventually he decides he's just going to look the other way the next day when deputy wilson comes to check on them they're all three playing cards on the floor getting along perfectly well even like ribbing each other for trying to cheat at cards yeah. like it doesn't really matter they're not taking the game serious Skip has a quick meeting with their attorney, and for some reason he brought his cousin Meredith to just help out on the case, and Skip is immediately smitten with her. She informs Skip that the young girl in the bank who enjoyed their song and dance remembered that the guys who stole the costumes and performed after them had a tattoo. One of them had a tattoo on his hand. So she's going to check the design against some local tattoo parlors, and then she takes a flying leap and suggests that there's a strip club where notoriously people with tattoos are customers of the strip club. So she's going to get a job at that specific strip club mm-hmm. to look out for people with tattoos in general. Like there's only one strip club in Arizona. Well, and they're assuming that these guys were locals. Yeah. As a complete non sequitur, Skip tells Meredith that he's always been fascinated by the romantic pairings of prisoners and women on the outside and asks if she could ever be interested romantically in a prisoner. Absolutely not. No, I didn't think so. I was just curious. Beatty is getting desperate, and Deputy Wilson hasn't made any progress convincing Skip to participate in the rodeo. Harry is dragged to the infirmary under the auspices of having his appendix removed, 
though on the way he insists it has already been removed. The man in the hospital bed next to Harry tells him he came here for a hernia operation, but they accidentally took one of his testicles. He warns Harry against the Korean doctor. Right on cue, the Korean doctor shows up, and Harry just runs screaming from the room. Skip agrees to the rodeo but demands his own team and a bigger sell, and Beatty agrees to the terms. Jack Graham is pretty upset about having been left out of the competition this year, so he and Deputy Wilson have cooked up a scheme. Skip rides his first actual horse and gets thrown in the dirt, but he says he just wanted to see what it felt like to fall. Yeah. And Grossberger carries him to safety. <laughs> Blade, another crime boss in the prison, gives Harry a lesson on how to be a rodeo clown. He tells Harry that every bull has one word that'll make it go crazy, and he needs to find out what that word is. After trying a few words and not making any progress, Harry says, shit, which it turns out is the word, and the bull knocks him over. We see them being discreet and putting together parts of their breakout plan. Skip trades cigarettes for pliers. Rory makes something in a metal shop. It looks just like spurs, but there's something going on here. And Grossberger bends a large piece of metal in a vice. And then we see uh, Jesus meeting with his wife during a visitation. Skip meets with his attorney and his cousin again. They inform him that the court won't allow testimony from the six-year-old girl who saw the tattoos. Instead of any helpful comment, Skip asks if she's seen the movie A Place in the Sun, and Meredith says it's her favorite. A Place in the Sun with Elizabeth Taylor and Montgomery Cliff? Yeah. That's my favorite. Your favorite? That's your That's my favorite, too. Does that tell us? It tells us that maybe we're not such strangers as circumstances would imply. Maybe we're not. Skip tells her he's a playwright and he invites her to the opening night of a play he's writing, and she accepts. Is there any indication of how he figured this out? Or is that is that from that movie? No, I think it's literally just supposed to be a thing they have in common. Okay, it just seems weirdly coincidental yeah. that he landed on that. I, I I think that they keep trying to establish that Gene Wilder has the ability to read people, read people mm. and 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 form a bond with them, and that's all I got. Yeah. <laughs> okay, all right. That night before the contest, Skip plays a song called "Rodeo Man" on an acoustic guitar in their lovely furnished and much larger prison cell. The cell houses Harry, Rory, Jesus, Grossberger, and Skip himself comfortably, though there's only four beds in here and there's five prisoners. Yeah. When Skip's song ends, Grossberger starts to sing a new song. Roses love sunshine, violets love dew, angels in heaven know I love you. If you don't love me, love who you please. Put your arms round me, give my heart ease. This is actually Grossberger singing here. He was pursuing a career in opera music when he took a hard left into acting. Yeah. He's a fascinating person like, yeah like he, he's an mit graduate a prof- huh. uh, with a computer science degree and he taught computer science wow and, and he was an olympic wrestler like, yeah he, he was he was an alternate on the olympic team and he would have been on the team in 1980 but that was the year that america didn't mm. participate um but he also like was born into like uh, a noble family in the netherlands and huh. there's all this crazy stuff about him but interesting guy he's a lovely singer yeah a beautiful singer uh unfortunately he didn't he didn't uh he didn't he wasn't around for very long after this film but uh, we'll talk about that towards the end jack graham meets with deputy wilson again to complain about not participating in the contest and wilson assures him that everything's been taken care of we cut to the strip club where the people with tattoos hang out not the one where tattoos aren't allowed that strip club that bars people with tattoos unfortunately Joe Beth Williams has been employed as a waitress and not a dancer here. <laughs> right away, she, or she could have been like the Times Square version of a dancer where she's like, mm. check this out. I got this crazy pitch. I don't take off any clothes. I just dance. 
Right away, Meredith spots the tattoo she's looking for in the hand of a strip club patron, and she runs to the phone to call it in. Then she's trying to reach out to her cousin, but she can't get a hold of him, and eventually finds him in a restaurant or something? Yeah. It looks like the guy with the tattoo on his hand is actually one of the cowboys at the speed bag from the bar when they first got to Arizona, but the two cowboys were both white, and one of the bank robbers was black. So... It's not the same two guys. Right. It's just one, one of the of two guys. One of the guys. When it doesn't matter. But even in the strip club, it's just two white guys again. But yeah. when they were bank robbers replacing uh, Harry and Skip, they there was one white guy and one black guy in there. So I don't know what's going on. Also, we never see them arrested. Right. We just but, understand this is happening in the background. Yeah. But when Meredith finds her attorney cousin at a restaurant, she drags him out to the rodeo venue because she wants to let them know right away that they're free. Warden Beatty shows up in a private box to take a seat next to the rival warden, Samson, just as the top hand competition is getting underway. Skip's team gets to their dugout area, and we see that Rory is removing the spurs from their boots and connecting them together to form a tool that they will use to pry the nails out of the back wall of their dugout. This is the entrance to their escape tunnel. Craig T. Nelson, as Deputy Wilson, comes around to wish Skip luck before he takes to the field, and Skip takes the first horse out and impresses everybody. Is it a horse the first time? I thought it was a horse the first time and then a bull after that. I think you're correct. Even Warden Sampson seems unexpectedly giddy about how well Skip does. He even gives Beatty a little pinch on the cheek you old samson's competitor geronimo moves out into the arena just as rory and harry are sneaking through their escape hole apparently no one's watching them at all because right they're yeah. just leaving well i guess it's supposed to be a secured area yeah so like you don't have to watch the exits yeah a third competitor moves into the arena and we follow rory and harry through this tunnel and they're sawing through additional walls and unscrewing ventilation shafts and trying to make a whole path to get out. Jesus's wife parks a small peanut stand just outside of this ventilation shaft, and Harry climbs out and into the cart, which he then closes, and she rolls it out into a parking lot. Skip gets on the bull for the second round, but just as they're preparing, Jack Graham puts a lock on his gate, when they can't get the gate open, the bull freaks out until Grossberger has to hop a fence and tear the lock off the gate with his bare hands before it kills Skip in this little area, this tiny paddock. And we should note that Grossberger is not a part of this escape plan. No. In, in the sense that he is not escaping. Right. Well, he'll well not originally, make it that tiny hole. Yeah, and originally they had only planned for the four of them right. to escape. He but, was a late addition to the team. But it's also, it's just, just, just pointing out how great he is. Yeah. Like he's willing to stay behind. <laughs> he's being very selfless. They needed someone to close the door after they left. Harry comes out of this RV in the parking lot made up with a goatee and glasses and heads back to the venue to help the other guys escape. Geronimo comes out on his second bull and we see Jesus slip through the new exit. So now three of the four people have escaped. Uh, the passage, like you said, is not big enough for Grossberger, but maybe he should stay in jail. <laughs> he yeah. did kill a lot of people, <laughs> though I guess Rory is a murderer as well. <laughs> uh, because rory's in there for killing his stepdad and yeah. he's like oh why and he's like because he made fun of what i was wearing and yeah. slapped my hand once and it's like okay that's not a good reason you should be in jail also i mean he might have just been saying that to be tough yeah harry and jesus's wife make sure that the bathrooms are clear and then lock the doors to start prying the ceiling vent loose from each room I'm not sure why this is necessary. They could have just done the peanut cart thing yes, three more times. that yeah. bothered me so much. Why didn't everybody just go out the same way? It seemed very effective. I think it just wasn't a complicated enough escape plan to take the whole third act of this movie. This movie was way too long. Yeah, it's okay. th this whole watching every single person escape in every stage of the right. escape is not necessary. Yeah. You just see them roll into the thing and then climb out of the peanut cart on the other side. That's all I needed to see and I would have totally understood what was happening. Yep. For the next contest, a bag of money is being tied to the bull's head, and Geronimo and Skip are going head-to-head -head in a tiebreaker to retrieve it. Skip strikes up a little conversation with the competition. By the way, the word is that your warden is an exceptionally sweet man. Is that true? He's a prick. A prick? Boy, did I hear that wrong. 
Well, is it true that you're an ass kisser? You're going to get a punch in the mouth. Did I say it? I'm just telling you what I heard. What are you so touchy about? I'm an ass kisser, too. <laughs> Obviously, we're both dumb ass kissers if no one's going to get one penny of this except two pricks. Stands to reason, doesn't it? As they wait for the bull to approach, Skip suggests that maybe they could work together and give this money to the prisoners who deserve it instead of these shitty wardens. Jesus's wife helps Rory down from the vent, fully dressed in drag as a disguise, um, so that they can leave the bathroom like that because right. they're coming out of the ladies' room. Ultimately, Skip leaves the decision about the money to Geronimo, who wins the match and, just as Skip planned, tears open the money sack and tosses it into the crowd of prisoners. Which Baby. I'm sure the pri- the prison warden will allow them to keep upon exiting. Well, you're not going to get this money back. That, that, all that money's getting keistered immediately. <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> you're, no, you're, no, you're not going to see one penny. If these guys can have cell phones discreetly now, there's no way you're going to get this cash back. I don't know where it went. I didn't see it. Everyone's shitting in bags for the next four days. <laughs> Damn. Beatty seems weirdly upset about the money being thrown to the prisoners, considering it's not even his money anymore. Skip pretends to be injured coming out of the field, and Grossberger lays him down next to the escape tunnel. Jack Graham seems to catch on to what they're doing, but when he gets too close, Grossberger knocks him unconscious. Harry, Rory, Jesus, and Skip all climb into the RV and drive away from the venue, but on their way down the street, they pass Meredith, who's approaching the rodeo, and notices Skip in the cab of the car going the opposite direction, which she would not do. Yeah. This whole thing is so ham-handed. Yeah, but then she just hangs a left immediately like we suggested not doing in our terror train review. (laughs) On the freeway. Yeah, and crashes directly into the side of the car in the next lane over. Um, But she's trying to hang a Yui to chase down this RV. And again, there's no point to this. They could have just had the car spun around, but I guess they needed time to To separate them. To separate it like a few distance. But I think you could have done that with them arriving at the rodeo and discovering that they have escaped or that they were missing. Yeah, it's well, it's a frustrating moment in an entirely frustrating ending to this movie because why do we have two competing stories that are wrapping this up? I, there is there's no reason. I think the only reason for it is so that the dumber people in the audience will think, oh, well, at least they're not in trouble anymore. That, so that like it's not at the end of the movie it's not like they have to go into hiding forever well you might have been innocent of the first crime but i believe right. that breaking out of jail is still that's crime. why only the dumber <laughs> people would be excited about it uh but meredith yanks this car into a bad u-turn and hits a bunch of people that says i'm sorry we're in a big hurry and leaves the scene of the crime uh harry and skip are dropped off in a warehouse and impossibly meredith finds them immediately and she says how did you get out busted up but you're free damn right we're free no, I mean they caught the other two guys. Thanks to Meredith. They celebrate that they won't be fugitives from the law, except that, of course, they just broke out of prison and aided in the escape yeah. of other convicted bank robbers and murderers. Yeah. Skip gives Meredith a kiss, and Harry and Skip decide to leave town before the state changes its mind, which it hasn't it hasn't even officially released you guys from prison yet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if you get found, you're going to be brought back to the prison and for processing before you're even released and, and i don't know is robbing a bank a state wouldn't that be a federal crime yeah it would be a federal crime they stop a few hundred feet away and skip leans out of the car to remind meredith that she's invited for the opening night of his play and she accepts and runs to the car to give him a big hug and then they all leave together and her cousin just shakes his head standing by his car like <laughs> i didn't do anything i wasn't even here it should have been a female lawyer yep <laughs> i literally served no purpose in this movie Yep. Yeah, Meredith should have been the lawyer from the, the start. The whole time. Yeah. 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 And it should have been weighed against her because she was a female lawyer that the judge didn't want to hear the case at the beginning. Yeah. And that would have been totally believable. Yep. It didn't need to be this doofus at the beginning just so that she could look competent and he could look like an idiot. It could have just been a bad system. Yeah. That's the end of the film. This was directed by Sidney Poitier for some reason. Um, actually, most of his movies that he directed are like this. <laughs> They're not... They're not amazing movies. Um, We saw him earlier this year as Mr. Tibbs in our Patreon review of They Call Me Mr. Tibbs from 1970. He obviously starred earlier in In the Heat of the Night and later in The Organization to round out the Virgil Tibbs trilogy. He won an Oscar for his portrayal of Homer Smith in 1963's Lilies of the Field. He was nominated in 59 for The Defiant Ones and took home an honorary Oscar in 2002. He also stars in Blackboard Jungle, Porgy and Bess, Raisins in the Sun, 
to Sir with Love, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and Sneakers. Yeah. I knew you'd like that one. But he also directed Uptown Saturday Night, A Piece of the Action, and lastly, Ghost Dad. He's a better actor than a director, but he's a perfectly serviceable director, and the movie obviously made a lot of money, so good work. I don't get why it made so much money. It made a lot of money because Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor were hot properties at the time. I guess they're big names, and you're just expecting a lot out of this. And I don't think this this was their their second of four matchups after Silver Streak, and Silver Streak was huge. Yeah. So this is like but, the next big thing from the same two guys. But as I recall, Richard Pryor is barely in Silver Streak. He's barely in this because he was having problems the whole time. And so they tr- try to write so much of the story around Gene Wilder, and they have like 12 scenes that Richard Pryor just isn't in, where they're just like, oh, now it's just going to be about Gene Wilder hitting on this attorney's cousin and for some reason they're just meeting with gene wilder alone (laughs) it's like why why couldn't they have both been there for that scene um isn't the whole point of putting these guys in a movie together is so that they can be together the whole time that's both of their attorney doesn't make sense that one would meet with them alone the writer here was bruce j friedman he previously wrote the heartbreak kid and followed this by writing these scripts for dr detroit and splash oh well there you go there you go uncredited writer charles blackwell wrote A Piece of the Action, also for Poitier. Cinematographer Fred Schuyler, his first DP credit was on Gloria earlier this year, followed by this and then Arthur, King of Comedy, Amityville 3D, Fletch, Armed and Dangerous. So he had some decent stuff. Armed and Dangerous, that's a good one. Yeah. Uh, Editor Harry Keller has lots of directing in the 50s and 60s, nothing I recognized. His editing credits date back to the 30s. And after this, he edited Stripes, Hanky Panky, and Transylvania 65000. Gene Wilder played Skip Donahue. His first film was Bonnie and Clyde. He's Leo Bloom in Willy Wonka, and he's Willy Wonka in The Producers. Strike that, reverse it. (laughs) (laughs) He's Jim in Blazing Saddles and Dr. Frankenstein in Young Frankenstein. He appears beside Richard Pryor in Hear No Evil, See No Evil, Silver Streak, and Another You outside of this film. He also directed The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes' Smarter Brother, The Woman in Red, and Haunted Honeymoon. Which is uh, also with him and Gilda Radner. Right, who he was married to um, and who nearly appeared as Olive Oil in our previous film. Richard Pryor played Harry Monroe. So far this year, we've seen him in both our biblical parody films, Holy Moses and In God We Trust. He appeared in... The previous Poitier film, Uptown Saturday Night, also The Wiz, The Muppet Movie, The Toy, Superman 3, and Brewster's Millions. George Stanford Brown played Rory Shelterbrand. He played Dr. Willard in Bullet and Tom Harvey on Roots. Jo Beth Williams was Meredith. This was her second feature film after Kramer vs. Kramer the previous year. She's Diane Freeling with Stir Crazy co-star Craig T. Nelson in Poltergeist. They play husband and wife. And she's also Karen in The Big Chill and Gwen Harper in Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. Craig T. Nelson played Deputy Ward Wilson. We've had him so far this year in Where the Buffalo Roam and Private Benjamin. And he still has Formula, or The Formula, in 1980. As I said, he's in the Poltergeist movies. He's Coach on Coach. And he's Bob Parr, Mr. Incredible in The Incredibles. Barry Corbin played Warden Walter Beatty. This is our second Barry Corbin movie featuring prison rodeos uh, <laughs> and uh, and mechanical bulls. Uh, he'll be back in any which way you can, so let's keep our fingers crossed for more mechanical bulls somewhere. He's General Berengen in War Games. He's Harv in Critters 2. He's Mr. Emery Collins in Poitier's final directed film, Ghost Dad. And he's Ellis in No Country for Old Men. Jonathan Banks played Jack Graham. We had him earlier this year as Gunderson in Airplane. He's also Deputy Brent in Gremlins, Hospital Guard in Buckaroo Bonsai, Clyde Klepper in Armed and Dangerous, Mike Ehrmantraut in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, Professor Hickey on Community, and Rick Dicker in The Incredibles, or Incredibles 2. I think he's like one of those chameleon actors. Yeah. This is the first time I've seen him with hair. I know. I guess he had hair in Airplane also. But Yeah. Well, I didn't even <laughs> we watched that movie like twice and I didn't yeah. notice him. But yeah, I, I wouldn't have if, if I hadn't looked at the cast, I would not have recognized him here either. Yeah. He just he blends in. But he's so great in everything. He plays such a wonderful character. Uh Erlen Van Litz played Grossberger. He played Terror in The Wanderers. 
He was Fatty in Alone in the Dark and Dynamo in The Running Man. Unfortunately, he passed away at 34 of heart failure before The Running Man even hit theaters. Carmen Marcello played Teresa Ramirez. She was Dolores in Blood In, Blood Out and Elena Morales in Borderline earlier this year. Franklin A.J. played a young man in Hospital. He's back as Bubba in Jazz Singer later this year, a detective in The Burbs, Sam Fields in Deadwood, and Maya Rudolph's dad in Bridesmaids. Hmm. That was everybody I had for the credits. Uh, I wanted to bring up Mickey Jones. That sounds familiar. Yeah, he's a character actor. You've seen him in tons of stuff. Um, I he most, wasn't in The Elephant Man earlier this year, was he? Uh, I don't think there so. There was a Jones in there. It was Toby Jones's dad. Uh, no, no, he's Different definitely, guy. yeah. Okay. Um, this guy, I, I mostly remember him from Home Improvement whenever they would have the construction site guys come on the oh, show. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the big guy with the beard. Oh, okay, I know exactly who you're talking um, about. He's, he Who's was on, he in here? Uh, it just says guard. Oh, okay. Um, but he was on Justified. Um, he's He's got a one-shot scene in Total Recall, which I always remember him. Because he always looks the same. Yeah. He, he never looks like... Like he never did. He has kind of a red his, beard. Yeah, yeah, yeah very big red beard. Um, and uh, so he's in, he's got a lot of characters that he plays. But uh, um, so I just saw him in the in the cast, and I was like, oh yeah, that's fun. Yeah, I didn't even see him in here. Maybe he didn't have the beard. Uh, it's it's possible. Yeah, and there were a lot of guards. And we already talked about Erlen Van Lith. So yeah, um, so yeah, this is not my favorite Wilder Pryor movie or prior wilder movie whatever you want to call them i still love but it is a prior wilder movie y- this is a prior <laughs> wilder movie to my favorite prior wilder movie it's a prior prior wilder movie my favorite is still hear no evil see no evil or see no evil hear no evil whichever it is that i don't know which one it is but i know what you're talking about yes and i agree uh because they are both in every scene and they're very very funny together um and in this movie they get separated a lot and it's just stuff you see in every jail comedy well and i this might sound silly but i find it hard to laugh at at jokes about being treated poorly in prison just because of the terrible state of our justice system that it's just like yeah that's it's not really funny anymore and even then like obviously because they're doing this with the full participation of the prison they can't be as critical as they should be if they were trying to make a point yeah so any any problems that they have it's just like oh well it's not an issue that they make us compete against wild animals for right money the problem is that they're not sharing the money with the prisoners it's like no 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 it's this whole practice is completely unacceptable yeah. Yeah. but the prison had to sign off on everything which meant you can't you can't show that the justice system is flawed the, the point of the movie at the end has to be these guys would have been released from prison because they didn't do it. Right. Which yeah. is unrealistic. Yeah. It's just. Although they would never have been sentenced and committed to this prison so immediately in the complete absence of evidence. Yeah. Because where's the money? Yeah. And why would we come back to the scene of the crime empty handed? Mm-hmm. And how did the car get 10 blocks away while we were standing here in front of the bank? Right. Well, I mean, they, and they made a point, though, that. They just wanted to convict somebody of the crime. They didn't care. And right. it made a lot of sense to convict these guys. And for the time period, this would have made sense if it was Richard Pryor and another black guy. Yeah. But they never would have convicted a white guy with no evidence of this crime. It's probably true. Even if he had a black friend. But yeah. Um, I would say this is not worth your time if you're looking for a solid comedy. Yeah. I, I think you might be... You might be distracted by the names Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder. This is neither of their best work. Although I think Gene Wilder is trying his darndest yeah. to make something out of it. It never clicks. Uh, I never felt like Gene Wilder had a character in this. Like Young Frankenstein, Willy Wonka, I feel like those are really characters that he got yeah. into. Yeah. And I feel like this this character, even in Haunted Honeymoon, I feel like his character was more, more developed. Yeah. yeah. And this, I just feel like it was Gene Wilder... Like just going, just like going what would crazy. be a funny way to bounce yeah. off of this person that I'm at? Yeah, like I said, the whole movie is aimless. There, there really isn't a solid through line except we don't want to be in jail. It's like, yeah, well, of course you don't want to be in jail. Right, I get that. And but, I like that even Richard Pryor knew on set that the movie was shit and that he admitted yeah. as much in like yeah of 
interview with the press. I mean, it's hard because I was excited to watch this movie and then I struggled to get through it. I, well, uh, it's like one of their more celebrated movies. This mm-hmm. and Silver Streak are supposed to be their better films. And I adore Gene Wilder. In, yeah. in, in every movie I've and seen him in up same until with Richard Pryor. <laughs> I, I love Richard Pryor in almost everything I think this is the first movie where I've ever been completely disappointed by his character mm-hmm. uh, you know what that's not true because uh, Holy Moses he was shit in that movie Yeah, <laughs> he didn't do anything he was just angry and sweaty I don't know. In, in God We Trust he was also weird <laughs> yeah but he was hilarious in In God We yeah, Trust it, and he was it, playing it, this <laughs> great character he made me laugh Yeah. yeah well yeah, this movie was a disappointment, and I don't think I could recommend it. It's not yeah. an up for me. Um, Richard, up or down? Oh, it's it's a down, and I feel bad for because you know I realize that Gene Wilder doesn't have too many acting credits, like compared to other people who've had a, as long of a career. Yeah, like you know, it, it, there's not that many. His, like when I was scrolling through his IMDb, it's like his acting is like, oh, this is this is all he's done, and for his big films, things like Young Frankenstein, Blazing Saddles, you know, the Mel Brooks stuff, obviously, and Willy Wonka, um, Haunted Honeymoon are my favorites. Yeah. Um, uh, this would be definitely towards the bottom of the list. I wish he had gotten to come back later in life and play some huge character. Like, you know how so many so many older character actors get brought back by directors who love them as kids? Yeah. Because I my that henchman script that I had written a long time ago, I wanted him to play like the main villain the judgmental character yeah and he would have been perfect for it (laughs) but uh he was retired from acting at the time i mean he stopped acting a long time ago yeah the last thing i remember him doing was a sitcom called something wilder that i used to watch that was funny i think it only ran for like a season that was in the 90s yeah yeah and that was like the last big thing he did i mean he had a couple other small things but that was that's about it but he passed away, what, three or four years ago? It's 2016. Okay, four. Sorry. Did you know he's from Milwaukee? I did not know that. Yeah. Uh, Jess, wh- what is your letterboxed position? Sorry, I was just distracted that Gene Wilder is not his name. I should have expected that. His birth name was actually Richard Pryor. <laughs> you know, I thought you were Richard Pryor. Um, I have this pretty low. Where did it go? It disappeared. Wow, that is low. <laughs> oh, so short is. you okay. couldn't even see him. <laughs> so short. Um, I have it at 106. It is below Rhodey and above The Private Eyes, which was another rather haphazard movie. Yep, that was seemed largely improvised. Yes. <laughs> Richard. Um, I have it a little higher. I have it at 81, uh, just below Smokey and the Bandit 2, and just above A Small Circle of Friends. All right. I have it lower. Um, I have it at 118 which is just under oh heavenly dog and just above Times square but i think that's everything for this one um if you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us we are vintage video pod on twitter facebook instagram and letterboxd we can also be found at vintagevideopodcast.com please consider rating us on itunes to help people find the show and if you take the time to leave us a review we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode if you're feeling especially generous you can also support the show through patreon.com slash vintage video podcast Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Tess, which IMDb describes like so. A strong-willed young peasant girl attracts the affection of two men. We leave you now with the trailer for Tess. What was the mystery behind her eyes? What was the secret beneath her smile? What was the shame concealed in her heart? was the truth about Tess. Columbia Pictures presents a new film by Roman Polanski, based on the classic Thomas Hardy novel, Tess of the Durbervilles, starring the stunning and sensual Nastasia Kinski as Tess. She was a poor man's daughter. I want to take you away from this wretched place. It's unworthy of you. An aristocrat's mistress. Why not make the most of life? I was blinded for a while, that's all. That's what all women say. How dare you talk like that? Has it ever struck you that what all women say, some women may feel... All right. And a gentleman's wife. Which are my hands and which are yours? Pet.
are all yours. She was born into a world where they called it an act of seduction, not an act of violence. I was your master once. I shall be so again. If you're any man's wife, you're mine. What she did would shatter her world forever. I shall protect you by every means in my power. Whatever you may or may not have done, I love you. I love you. Tess. A tapestry of color and light. Of breathtaking beauty. Of overwhelming emotion. A story as timely today as the day it was written. In the tradition of the great motion picture classics, Gone with the Wind, Lawrence of Arabia, and Dr. Shivago. This is Roman Polanski's modern masterpiece, Tess, a victim of her own provocative beauty. <laughs>